episode 32. It's time to breathe new life into the social entrepreneur by empowering you to make a living through fulfilling work that will impact lives. You'll make money, but more importantly, you'll make a difference. Welcome to the Change Creator Podcast. It's time to build a business with purpose. Now here's your host, Adam Force. Hey everybody, Adam Forrest here. Thank you so much for joining the Change Creator Podcast Show. Today we have a really special guest. Uh, they're doing outstanding work at very large scale. Um, he was elected as a senior fellow for his work as a leading social entrepreneur by Ashoka. The Nonprofit Technology Enterprise Network awarded him its Lifetime Achievement Award, and the Nonprofit Times included him on its annual list of 50, the 50 most influential people in the nonprofit sector. His name is Daniel Ben Horn, and in 1987, he founded a company under the name CompuMentor, which evolved into TechSoup and TechSoup Global as the Internet of Things started to change the game. Their mission is to connect nonprofits with the technology they need to progress in their own causes. They find innovative ways, basically, to help where no infrastructure exists uh, at the at the current time. Um, now, today, just to give you a sense of their scope, they have over two. 200 employees, an annual budget of 30 million plus in our over, in our over 235 countries with their network reaching over 690,000 organizations. So we're going to start talking to Daniel and see what he has to say. Don't forget to stop by changecreatormag.com um, and also leave us reviews on iTunes and Stitcher or SoundCloud, whatever your preferred network is, to listen to our podcast. They go a long way and we appreciate your support. So without further ado, let's get started. Adam, I'm fine. How are you doing? Um, keeping very busy, but doing well. Good, good. So, um, I appreciate you jumping on this call. This is uh, really exciting. I'm interested in learning more about what you're doing, um, and hopefully, I think our listeners can learn a lot from your experience. So, if you if you could, I, I would actually like to start out um, with a little more background. I I understand the TechSoup Global family, um, but just for our listeners' sake, because it is a little bit more of a complex organization in my eyes, if you can just give a rundown of the family and, and how that's structured and broken out, it seems like you have a, a lot of different um, categories that tackle different areas of the business, and I just want to help people understand what we're talking about. In, in a sense, uh, you could say about TechSoup that uh, we developed the social enterprise as a as a means of achieving social impact. And over time, the, the success of the social enterprise has demanded a lot of attention on our part. And sometimes to our consternation, people think the social enterprise is the only thing we do, which is not the case. So by the social enterprise, I mean primarily the uh, organization of donated technology through an Amazon-like system, which is called TechSoup, and which which is on the verge of becoming truly global. And in 2016, we'll be offering donations. Excuse me, in in every uh, non-embargo country and territory in the world, 240 of them. But it built gradually over 10, 10 or so years right. um, in, t in terms of scope. And while we were 
developing that program, which does generate fees uh, and which supports and helps support a network of 52 partner NGOs that help us administer the program around the world, we continue to work in a lot of other areas to support civil society organizations use technology to achieve their missions. So we become very interested in nonprofit data, in uh, illuminating the nonprofit sector for donors and partners. Mm-hmm. We become interested in, in helping nonprofits understand how to use their own data to achieve their missions. And we organize programs and projects that are very much in that realm. We've been very active in uh, challenges that are designed to spur innovation from the civil society sector to benefit society. Yeah. That's something in my throat. One second, please. That's better. Uh, And those those challenges which started under the name, under the brand Restart in Romania, um, they're an interesting story in themselves, but we have a whole uh, process called the Community Cycle, which... Mm -hmm. Uh, encourages people who are who have ideas about how to access open data, for example, to improve government or to improve uh, any aspect of uh, community life, where those people can compete with each other to obtain backing and support, and, and often they end up cooperating. Uh, and that this restart program has spread throughout the Balkans and even to Turkey. Um, so we're we're very proud of that. Um, we 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 work uh, a lot with refurbishers to support the refurbished computer uh, movement globally, which is an alternative to recycling, a much more ecologically sensitive uh, alternative. We produce a great deal of content which we share about how to uh, be an effective technological mm-hmm. nonprofit wherever you are. Um, I think I'll, I'll just pause there, but I think you get a sense that yeah, there, there are yeah. things that are not, not necessarily about product donations that occupy our attention. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the, the primary thing as you start looking at it is really just the, the product donations and bringing technology to these groups so they can you know progress with their causes and things like that. So that does kind of round off uh, with a lot more insights, which is helpful. Um, and, you know, and you guys have things like Net Squared um, so, and these different areas which it's kind of divided up under uh, under TechSoup Global. So um, are, are you seeing a lot of traction? Uh, NetSquared is your most recent addition for a subgroup, right? No, no, that's not. Uh, I mean, I think that speaks to our own, um, the confusion we sometimes have caused because, we, as you say, we do a lot of things and yeah. So just just yesterday, we launched a new brand, and you know our hope is that it'll be easier when someone goes to the TechSoup site to see how the different pieces relate to each other. NetSquared started in, I'm going to say, 2006. We held a series of large conferences right. that were among the very first that um, uh, focused on crowdsourcing ideas and and. Uh, that, that, that approach to innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of your listeners may know of Ushahidi, a uh, Kenya-based uh, organization that has become sort of the gold standard in mapping software for, for social uh, 
crazy season, and uh, we recently released a, a rugged router called The Brick. They were the first winner of a Net Square Grand Prize, so okay. we take a lot of pride in okay. that relationship to some very innovative organizations. Over time, we stopped uh, holding the annual conference because it was there were many conferences like that, and concentrated on what we called Net Squared Locals, which was basically a way of letting people in any community who wanted to organize around the principle of uh, sharing technological innovation for change to both meet locally and relate to a more global uh, perspective of the other locals and of, of TechSoup. Okay. And those Net Squared Locals have now expanded. I, I don't have a number in front of me, but I think it's on the order of 70 or 80 locals around the world. But that's, yeah. this, this program has been in place for 10 years. Close to it. Right, right. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and so because when I was reading through some of your materials, and it, it seems like not only are you, because uh, what I was thinking when I initially discovered you guys is, wow, this is really great that you guys are supporting people um, to bridge the technology gap and help enhance their businesses and move them forward. But it also uh, has an angle to bring communities together to have an opportunity to work together. Um, am I correct in saying that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think the, the important point, though, is that when you're talking about communities working together, the, the energy, the vision, and, the, and ultimately the implementation has to come from the community. Right. But we don't sit, we don't sit here in San Francisco with a program for how a next square local in Cameroon should, uh, should operate or what it should concentrate on, gotcha. nor do we... Um, we have partner NGOs in the uh, Protestant Nations program, and we meet and talk with them constantly, but we don't impose any program from here on them. We just try to share what we've done. Often we take advantage of what they've done. Right. Um, and, and so I think the whole core idea is that technology is a tool. It's not the end in itself to use it, nor, nor do people who have the ability to use technology and uh, necessarily have the clearest ideas about what it should be used for. <laughs> sure, yeah. We, yeah. We, 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 we really believe that those ideas, those programs, are have to come from the ground up, and that, that's the premise that uh, pervades everything we do. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, so now that we, we understand a little bit more in detail just the, the big picture of TechSoup Global, uh, I, I always like to take a step back and just find out a little bit more about how you got to the mindset where you wanted to start this business. And so I'm just curious if you could share with us uh, what you were doing before um, CompuMentor, uh, which I guess you started in 1987. Um, and what kind of experience you had before then, and, and if that actually played into the evolution of you starting that business? Well, uh, Adam, you know, as I mentioned to you before, when I said we were an organization, not a company, uh, in an online exchange, and, and now I'll, I'll take issue with the word business, but as a way of okay. answering your uh, answering your question. I, I, I'm, I'm very much of a particular generation, uh, the boomers. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a boomer in good standing, uh, born in 1947. And, and uh, I think like many people whom I knew, not certainly not everyone in that generation, as you know, George Bush has revealed, but um, 
like many of the people that I came of age with, the given was that we would work for social change. I mean, for many people, it started with just oh. not wanting to go to Vietnam and just oh, yeah, yeah. progress from there. Uh, and from my perspective, I've been a journalist. Uh, I was a journalist from the time I left college in 69 into the late 70s. Uh, and then I uh, became the director of an organization called Media Alliance for four years, still continued to write uh, as a freelancer. But all that time, through all that time, you know, what was driving me was, you know, how can I be a, an effective change agent? And, and, uh, and it was fun, too. I mean, I'm not trying to make it sound sacrificial. That was very much the zeitgeist. It was a lot cheaper to live. Yeah. And you could, afford, you could afford to do some things that are very difficult to do now as a young person. And I, you know, I look at my own, my two sons, and I look at their friends, and I look at, you know, young people in general, I think, wow, it's a lot harder now to to devote yourself to the change. You know, there's so many more pressures uh, in terms of making a living, finding housing, and, and, and all sure, that. Sure, sure. Uh, however, I was part of that generation, and by the mid-'80s, it, I was feeling very frustrated, or, or somewhat frustrated, I should say, I shouldn't exaggerate, that, that the nonprofit organizations I knew were really lagging behind this technological era that, to me, was obviously coming. Uh, by 1985 in San Francisco, you know, you didn't have to be a brilliant technologist to see that, you know, that this stuff wasn't going away. Uh, I got very, very interested in one of the first online bulletin uh, well, it was more than a bulletin board. Online communities, well, it still exists in a right. yeah. much reduced form, uh, but it was very vibrant in, in the mid-'80s. And I, I guess when I, the first time I was, you know, I, I remember very clearly that, that, uh, that I didn't think it was possible that people would want to actually communicate with each other by typing on their keyboards. Yeah. I, and I had, a, I had a nerdy friend who said, oh, you know, you're going to, you got to see this. And I said, look, this is just not going to happen. That's not how people will relate. So he said, just try it once and, and then talk. And I tried it once and I could, it was very compelling just from the first moment. And as I experienced that and saw my nonprofit friends and, and colleagues not having that experience, not wanting to go in that direction of trying out technology, the idea for Computer arose that these yeah. people, specifically the people on the well, wanted to share what they knew. And the people in the nonprofit world needed what they knew. And also the people on the well needed what was going on in the nonprofit world. They needed that input into their lives. So I thought it was a synergy that could be made to happen, to be helped to happen. And a foundation took a $2,500 chance if I was right. And, and that's what we did at first, matched up uh, well, you know, techies from the well with nonprofits in the Bay Area. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. You know, kind of grew somewhat serendipitously. I mean, there wasn't a business plan. In 1987, for what that has become today. Right, right. So, so back in 1987, you didn't have a vision necessarily that was what you see today. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, if you told me as a you know as a 40 year old radical in 1987 that I would be working as closely as I've come to work as we have come to work with the corporate sector, I would have. <laughs> you know, I would have laughed at you. Yeah, I mean, it was inconceivable to me. I mean, I've, I've, I've gone through a lot of education over the years in, in terms of 
uh, parts of society that I had previously dismissed or not taken right. seriously or disrespectfully as they should have. Interesting. So, I mean, are you seeing uh, since then a pretty big evolution or change, I guess, in, in the mindsets of the newer generations? Like, do you see a shift happening to to more socially conscious or businesses with purpose or organizations that are, you know, out for a good cause? Do you see that happening more often now? Uh, I, 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 think it's, I think that's a really complicated question. Um, <laughs> it's not, it's not, or at least it has in my mind, a complicated answer. It's, it's, I don't think it's a matter of more or less. I mean, I think the, it's not just, it's not strictly quantitative. It's, it's qualitative as well. And uh, I'll give you an example. In, in, back in the day, there was much less corporate social responsibility. And the corporations that did feel like they wanted to function as contributors to a more equitable society took great pride in the fact that their giving programs were not associated with their business goals. They were purely philanthropic. Mm -hmm. And some of those corporations were extremely dynamic actors around causes they believed in. If you fast forward, you find that CSR is much more normative now. But for many corporations, it feels like they're checking the box. You know, they're, they're um, yeah. and the, the idea that CSR should in, should not 100% support the business goals of the corporation is almost unheard of now. So that creates a different kind of relationship to social problems. And, you know, if you're looking at a social problem and saying, how can we all solve this? That's different than saying how can we all solve this that increases our bottom line? Right. Um, right. And, and there's more of that uh, now. So that's on the corporate level. As far as, as, far as young people, you know, I'm, I'm a, uh, I don't know whether I'm the, 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 the happiest um, commentator. I mean, what I, what I perceive is a, is a kind of deep hopelessness and some extent denial of how dire many things sure. seem to be. And then that takes the form of, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a good person. You know, I'm going to do one good thing or, you know, more than one. You know, I'm just going to be a good person, a contributing person in my immediate environment because the big picture is just too big to touch. Yeah. It's too big to affect. So I guess what I'm saying is I, I think there's a a deep sense of powerlessness that is being reacted to with good deeds. And you see this whole proliferation of, you know, X for good, Y for good, you know, Z for good. And it always makes you think, is there an X for evil? You know, what, what is the, what's the contrast here? Aren't we all for good? I mean, isn't that a given? Um, it seems, uh, it doesn't seem very, well analyzed or thought through. Um, yeah. It seems like an instinctive reaction. There's a lot of it, which is a good thing. You know, I think I think it is sort of normative to um, to be a positive person. Yeah, sure. To the extent you can, you can be, and that's that's heartening. Sure, that's heartening. sure. 
Well, and it seems what like what, what, what do you what do you what do you think? I can't just <laughs> yeah. You know, I I feel like there's some growing pains, right? So over time, um, I feel like as each new generation starts um, blooming, that they have more of a conscious mind towards you know protecting the rainforests or you know feeding the hungry or whatever it may be. Um, you know, they're they are more knowledgeable about the challenges we have and realistic about them and. You know, that's what we're, but the, I think there's a gap in, in how people, they don't know the path to making a living, you know, where they can sustain their family and themselves, but actually continue to follow that passion to make a difference in, you know, protecting the rainforest or getting people clean water. How do they do that? So I feel like there's that gap. Um, and right now with the advent of the internet and the, the access to communication and, and, and um, you know, it makes it easier. So hopefully it feels like now there's all these niches that are popping up and people are starting to say, well, here's what I can help you with. What can you help me with? And we're creating these niche uh, endeavors that support each other and they all have a purpose behind them. So I think it's just maybe we're in a transitional growing pain right now that people are learning to think differently about how they make a living. Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, what occurs to me as you, as you, was that uh, I think my generation was kind of obsessed with power relations. Yes. So, you know, they, they saw the capitalist state right. as the enemy. And they weren't, you know, they would often speak uh, scornfully of mere reform or mere amelioration, um, things that just made things better in the short term. Right. And that, that was just one component of the generation. I think there were others of us who thought, you know, you, whatever you want to do for the long term, if you, if you can't be, you know, you still don't just step around that person lying in the street. Because <laughs> right, exactly. It's, 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 just, it's just a short-term solution to, you know, to help them get up. Um, I think this generation, I think, does not think a lot about power relations. Um, I mean, they don't think that there are, that the problem with clean water might be ultimately economic vested interests, which directly or indirectly profit from the water not being clean, well, and right. which may have state, state, state support and may be part of a, you know, a geopolitical dynamic that doesn't lend itself to you know, well-meaning reform by young people in the United States. So I don't think they think very much about that, and they no. just go out and clean up the water as best they can. Which is, <laughs> right, right. Which is great, but I mean, I, I guess I'm, you know, I, I think we have to do both because those power relations left unchallenged. Yeah, if you don't change yeah, are, those, are, are, are dangerous. Yeah, exactly. No, I I agree. Uh, you know, when it comes to the guys up on top, and there's different policies, and those, like you said, those powerful relationships. That you know, it, it feels like there are a lot of grassroots. Um, you know, you look at people like Amazon Watch, and um, you know, the bigger organizations like Greenpeace. They're they are out there trying to uh, challenge those things and create different legislations and things like that that can protect the environment and. Those are the big changes that definitely have to happen. And, and hopefully by 
starting to cooperate more um, and get the corporations, these multinational corporations on board with what their participation is, um, it, it will help drive that. But to me, each individual plays a part in those changes because if we're all making a demand based on our habits, then the corporations follow suit, which then hopefully the legislations and policies and other things start changing. I would like you to be right. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, yeah, so some of the other things that I'd like to ask is before we wrap up here, just to give the audience a little more insight into, you know, um, your your business and what's going on. You're going to call it a business even if... Ah, I can't. It's a hard habit to break. I'm sorry. Organization. Okay. It's well, just we're, a... we're a 501c3. Right. No one has equity. No one holds equity in a 501c3. Uh, yeah. You know, when pe- people sometimes say to me, you know, when you sell... <laughs> There's nothing to sell, you know. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a different. I mean, people have retirement plans, and so on, but um, it's a, it's a different way of being in the world. I think it's worth noting in being yeah. a business. Yeah, totally. So, okay. so I guess one of the things I wanted to find out just is, you know, when it comes to to your organization, you know, if somebody, one of our listeners, is interested in starting a nonprofit. Um, how does the funding for your staff and and things like that work? How do how do you how does that model uh, play out in in the nonprofit world? Well, first of all, I would say that I would think very carefully about whether being a nonprofit is the right organizational model. Sure. For what a person wants to do, I think you know models like B Corps, B Corp uh, model is is pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you have to evaluate a lot of a lot of factors, such as where is your funding likely to come from. The the uh, private equity does not does not invest in nonprofits. So, if you're a nonprofit, you're foreclosing. You know, no venture capitalist is going to invest in you because that's not what they do. I mean, as an individual, someone from that community might want to be an angel for you, but that's pretty rare, too. You know, their, their mindset is that um, we, it's doing well by doing good. We, we can create businesses that meet needs and make money and solve problems, and that's where their money goes. Foundations um, can and do support nonprofits, but that the competition for foundation dollars... <laughs> Is really really fierce. Uh, I mean, there's the the foundation sector has grown, I think, but not proportionate to the need uh, and proportionate to the number, the huge number of nonprofits in the United States that are and and elsewhere as well that are banging on the doors of American foundations. So, what foundations are are often the, the stance they they often take is that. Some significant percentage of the nonprofit's uh, maintenance has to come from earned revenue, and that can be a business, or it can be fee for service uh, for, for the services you render. Um, but the days of a of nonprofits being eighty percent, ninety percent funded on an ongoing basis by foundations is those days are over. And uh, yeah. as far as private donors, it's you know, there's some people who are, I mean, we all know about Kickstarter and crowdfunding and, you know, all that yeah. stuff, but there's, uh, you know, you hear about the success stories, of course. but you don't, you know, you don't see the roadkill. <laughs> and the, the, the uh, 
for every successful campaign, there, whether it's on a, a through crowdfunding or more traditional attempts to uh, raise donations from individuals, for every for every successful attempt, there there are many that suck up a lot of cycles yeah. and don't yield the results. Sure. So I guess I would wrap that up by just saying, be prepared. I mean, you, you should, I think some people these days are coming up with a good idea to make things better and trying to build either a business or a nonprofit around that idea. And my comment on that is you really need to believe in it. You know, you need to be willing to stay the course because you will not be happy if your idea does not, you know, achieve some traction in the world. Yeah, of course. I mean, you have to make a commitment on that level um, as well as figure out, you know, whether it's more likely to succeed right, as right. a private, you know, in the private, in the private side or in the nonprofit side. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um... All right, so I'll, I got two more things, and, and the last thing I'm going to give you a minute just to make any final comments to the audience. Um, but the one question I did forget to, to ask that I'd like to understand, if you don't mind, is when you started getting partnerships, I guess, with the Microsofts and Adobe's and all these great, um, you know, uh, businesses that are are donating to help you support the the nonprofits. How did you build those relationships and get that started? Just curious on how you started networking and and what the benefit is for them to participate and you know things like that. I'm just curious how that works. Okay, uh, I think the answer might surprise you. Um, <laughs> in 1988, about a year after I started Complementor. Because I had come from the media world, I was hanging out, you know, with my friends were journalists, and a lot of them were migrating to the computer press. Ah, yeah. And more than one of them was telling me about all the software they were throwing away. And, and this, of course, was review software. So when a company put out a, you know, a new product, and it could, it could be WordPerfect, or it could be how to play chess with your dog, I mean, and, and anything in between. They would look on the masthead of computer world. They'd find four likely editors or writers, and they'd send each of them their own huge box because that's what software came in. And these boxes were, uh, you know, like an environmental hazard at these magazines. They were piling up, and the magazines had to get rid of them. That's what my friends were telling me. Some of them said, well, we just take them to the dump. And some said, well, we let the staff have what they want, and we put the rest out on the sidewalk. I mean, it was, it was crazy stuff, and I... <laughs> Said, don't, don't do that. This stuff is in shrink wrap. It has to be valuable. Um, <laughs> and we'll send the guy around in the truck. You put it in the truck, and we'll give it to nonprofits. And it. they agreed. And uh, we started sending a guy around in the truck, uh, an underemployed avant-garde jazz saxophonist uh, named Bruce Ackley, one of the founders of the Rover Saxophone Quartet, and he's still with us, you know, 25 years later. Wow. Um, and they, he's no longer driving truck. Uh, but the, um, we, we published a list of what we had and we made it available for $5 uh, a box to the, the first come first serve. Mm -hmm. You had to pick it up. Uh, and that, out of that, we started having a few small relationships with, um, I'd say fledgling companies, companies that wanted to give us we're trying to break into the market so they might give us a hundred copies of what they made and hope, you know, to achieve a little, you know, installed customer base and so on. 
And we really didn't have any big companies involved in the program until Lotus Notes, uh, for some reason, which I can't remember, in the early 90s, joined it. And Lotus Notes is very complex uh, collaborative software. There probably were, you know, were two nonprofits in the world you know, who, who were adept enough to use it. So it wasn't much use to our audience, mm-hmm. but we could say we were working with Lotus, which is good. Um, and then in, in about 94, we secured and, you know, we had to find a, a friendly intermediary who knew them. I mean, they weren't answering our cold calls, but we secured an audience with Microsoft. And then, then things started to happen. They were, they were ready for a new partner. They were impressed with the fact that we actually serve nonprofits and, and in other ways than, than just, you know, give them stuff, you know, that we would support sure. the donations and report on it. And they've been an incredible partner, you know, for, for 20 years. Uh, and, you know, I remember the first meeting, I said, you know, we are independent and, you know, we will report on open source and, you know, we will support other platforms, but we'll do a great job for you. Is that okay? And they said, no, we wouldn't want it any other way because, you know, we, Hmm. we, we want to partner with credibility in the nonprofit world. And they, they stuck to that. So. Yeah, no, that's actually really interesting. It did surprise me a little bit. Of course, once they they were on board, things became easier and and we turned it into much more of a business. And our current CEO, Rebecca Massasak, who is a brilliant business person as as well as a very dedicated social change agent, came to the organization around 2002 and... uh, you know, under her guidance, it's just a huge amount of growth. Yeah, well, that's always helpful. Um, and, and and just one last quick thing is is you guys have scaled quite a bit um, in over the years. Is there any particular, um, I'll say, marketing um, you know technique or anything you did? Maybe it's word of mouth. I don't know, or just the relationships you built with these organizations um, that really helped you scale up the way you have. Well, um, I, I would I would say this that when you're operating anything you do in the nonprofit world cannot be based on the financial transaction mm-hmm. underpin it because they're never going to be as lucrative as the transactions in the in the private sector and if you if if people are sort of in it for the wrong reason, I mean, obviously people need to eat and they need to be paid and all those good things. But, you know, if, if the basis of the dialogue is not your shared social goals, then you're starting from the wrong place. So when we built a partner network, that was the starting place. You know, who wanted to do the same things in the world that we did, yeah. not who was going to make us the most money. Um, and then the second thing I'd say is that if nonprofits don't compensate their staff at the highest level financially, then I think it's obligatory for nonprofits to compensate their staff at the highest level culturally. Yeah. In terms of a you know a, a supportive working environment, a, a place where you feel respected and heard, and I think those are principles that. We've tried not always entirely successfully. You know, no, uh, no one bats a thousand. We're 
yeah. maybe even 500. But, you know, we, we try very hard to operate on those principles, and we operated on those principles with our partners uh, in, in recruiting them. You know, we invited them into our homes when they came here. Uh, you know, we've developed a set of personal relationships with the leaders of our partners in many countries that get us through the rough patches. You know, when something isn't going well financially, it's a lot easier to work that out with someone you trust oh, than yeah. with someone you distrust. So we've tried to really make trust between us and our partners and between all of us and the nonprofits we serve um, sort of the, the linchpin of scaling. Yeah, well, that's actually really helpful, and I appreciate it. So if you haven't, you know, I'm going to wrap up here, um, and I just want to give you an opportunity yeah. if there's anything else you want to say for these inspiring entrepreneurs who are looking to, you know, be change creators. Um, if you have any final words there. No, I, I, I'll just leave it at what I've said. Is that okay? Yeah, no, that's no problem. Yeah. And, and I would just recommend okay. people check you out at techsoupglobal.org. Um, they have a lot of great information, and you can see uh, what they're doing. So, Daniel, hey, I really, again, appreciate your time. I know time is valuable. So thanks again, and I hope you uh, have a wonderful uh, rest of the day. Thank you, Adam. Okay, take care. That's all for this episode. Your next step is to join the change creator revolution by downloading our interactive digital magazine app for premium content, exclusive interviews, and more ways to stay on top of your game. Available now on iTunes and Google Play or visit changecreatormag.com. We'll see you next time where money and meaning intersect right here at the Change Creator Podcast.